Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another solo deep dive episode of Reimagining Love. This is part two of our two-part series called I'm Thinking About Getting Back Together With My Ex. So in last week's episode, in part one, I set this topic up with some context and I talked you through the first six of the 12-question framework that I developed to help couples who are considering getting back together after a breakup. In today's episode, we will pick up where we left off by exploring questions 7 through 12. Today's episode comes with a companion worksheet that provides you with all 12 of the questions. If you are a newsletter subscriber, you're going to receive this worksheet in your inbox. Otherwise, head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash chances to download it. Now remember, these 12 questions are designed to be used first to guide your self-reflection and then by the two of you to guide curious conversation. Now I said it last week, but it's so important that I'm going to say it again. I am neither for nor against the notion of getting back together with somebody you've broken up with. It's not really, frankly, a matter of pro versus con, but What I do know for sure is that creating a second version of your relationship is not for everyone. And I also know that I'm committed to offering you resources and a framework that can help you guide this process. Sometimes relationships end for really clear reasons that make reuniting impossible unsafe, or just frankly ill-advised. And your work there is just to keep integrating the loss, just to keep seeking support, just to keep returning again and again to the present moment, and just keep creating a new version for yourself, for your future without that person in it, bit by bit, day by day. Sometimes, however, relationships end because the timing is lousy or the context in that moment feels impossible, or because one or both people in the relationship have kind of hit the ceiling of their relational self-awareness. And then context changes or people grow, and there becomes an opening to explore what might be possible. And that's what we're talking about today. There is no such thing as picking up where you left off in the relationship because, as the saying goes, you can never step into the same river twice. You have both gone through a breakup, 
and you have both gone through time apart from each other. You cannot recreate version 1.0 of your relationship, even if one or both of you want to go back to how you used to be. And realistically, I don't want you to want to go back to version 1.0 of your relationship because version 1.0 of your relationship is the one that ended. You need a new version that's built on something different, something more sustainable. So let's talk through these questions to help you get there. Question number seven, what do you need to forgive the other person for before you begin again? In other words, how will you leave the past in the past? The past is inevitably the context. And at the very same time, you both need and deserve to be seen for how you are showing up today. It's going to be necessary for you and this person to have an explicit conversation about whatever resentments you still hold, whether that's resentment for a single incident or resentment for a pattern of behavior. When it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness has to be offered, not demanded. So I'm envisioning a conversation or more likely a series of conversations in which partners are asking this question, what do you need me to own, to witness, to apologize for? Like I said at the top, (laughs) this idea is not for the faint of heart, right? That's a really brave and difficult question. The forgiveness process goes most smoothly also when partners can really unburden each other by taking responsibility for their part of the dance. So again, it's not about equal harm, but it is about acknowledging that we each played a part. Even if my part is something along these lines, you know, I stayed quiet when your behavior hurt me. And in doing so, I realize now that you didn't get the feedback that might possibly have motivated you to change your behavior. That doesn't mean I'm responsible for your choices, but it does mean that I need to forgive myself for my silence. And it also means that if we're going to consider reconciliation, I'm going to need you to be open to my feedback, my observations, my experiences, not that my experiences are quote unquote right, not that I'm in charge, but I know for myself, I'm committed to remaining in touch with my thoughts and feelings. And I'm committed to creating a relationship where my thoughts and my feelings have the space and the breath to be heard, to be seen, to be validated. Okay. So that's an example of how that might go, right? For you and for this person. But get really clear on what it is that you need to forgive your ex for and let yourself be clear on the risks and the benefits of forgiving. Like that amazing line in the movie Shawshank Redemption, get busy living or get busy dying. Bringing old resentments into a new relationship is going to exhaust you and it's going to compromise not just trust but also ease and joy and intimacy. And I get it. Listen, I get it. Letting go of the past is tricky. There is absolutely a vulnerability to putting yourself back out there again. 
resentment ends up in this weird way feeling like kind of a cozy blanket. It's like weirdly familiar and protective and safe, right? If I resent you, if I can pull out that old, you know, wound, that old hurt, that old thing that you did to me, if I can pull that out at any moment, then I really don't ever have to be vulnerable, right? Forgiveness is letting go of that ability to bring that out whenever I feel vulnerable or tender or like I stretched a bit too far into closeness with you. And I think it can be helpful to simply just name for yourself, I am taking a risk. And then see if you can maybe get in touch with also a little bit of pride, that there's a little bit of pride perhaps in taking a risk, not an eyes closed kind of a risk, but an eyes open kind of a risk. And remember that trust can certainly be destroyed in an instant, but trust gets rebuilt in these little micro moments of risking and then experiencing something that is different, something that is safer. So yes, you do need to be committed to engaging in a pretty active process of forgiving so that you can get to know this person again. But you don't need to be forgiving all at once. Forgiveness is a process. It's a dimmer switch, not an on-off switch, as you may have already heard me say at some point along our reimagining love journey. Our brains are hardwired with a negativity bias. As Dr. Rick Hansen says, our brains are Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. So outside of our conscious awareness, our brains are forever scanning for signs of safety and signs of danger. And we are pattern recognizers. We recognize patterns. We seek patterns. Well, getting back together with someone that you already broke up with once means there are all kinds of patterns that are already primed for you to be noticing and coding and recognizing and having all kinds of thoughts and feelings and sensations about. So let's take a look at this idea in action. I'm going to give you a pretend couple. Let's talk about Ruth and Tony. Ruth and Tony are exploring the possibility of getting back together after having been apart from each other for six months. When they were together, Tony was experiencing an episode of depression, but he was refusing to get the help that he needed and that he really did deserve. And Ruth had tried to be helpful. She tried to support him. She tried to encourage him to see a therapist, and they ended up getting stuck in what couples therapists call a pursuer-distancer cycle. The more Ruth pursued, cajoling and pleading and criticizing and pointing out all of Tony's underfunctioning and suffering, the more Tony distanced, pulling back, shutting down, getting defensive, getting stuck, pulling further and further away. The more Tony pulled back and shut down, the more Ruth criticized. So round and round they went. Pursuer, distancer. Ruth pursuing, Tony distancing. Round and round. Until Ruth ended the relationship. Now, underneath this pursuer-distancer cycle was obviously a world of pain for each of them. Ruth felt lonely, she felt invalidated, and she missed her friend and lover. Tony felt ashamed and stuck and like a chronic disappointment to Ruth. And as a guy who came from a long line of stoic men, 
he had no real role model for how to seek help for himself. During their time apart, Tony started therapy and he joined a men's group. And as Tony and Ruth reestablished contact with each other, Ruth obviously felt pretty conflicted. She has love for Tony, so of course she wants him to be well and thriving, but she feels frustrated that he didn't address his emotional well-being until she turned the volume all the way up in desperation. So this means that as Ruth and Tony begin to explore reconciliation, they're going to need to do some forgiveness work. Number one, Ruth needs to forgive herself for staying in a relationship in which she was not being listened to. Number two, Tony needs to forgive himself for not being able to listen to Ruth and take in her observations and take in her care. Number three, Ruth needs to forgive Tony for not listening to her. Number four, Tony needs to forgive Ruth for the things that she said when she had the volume turned all the way up. So I want to talk you through how the forgiveness of self part might look and how the forgiveness of other part might look. So first, let's talk about forgiveness of self. Forgiveness of self basically looks like massive doses of self-compassion. Self-compassion work is anchored more deeply when you can tie the way that you abandon yourself to a core wound that you carry, usually a core wound from your family of origin. So for Tony, he needs to be deeply compassionate with himself about how blocked he was from listening to Ruth. And as he does this work, he connects that block to a family of origin pattern. So Tony grew up in a home where he watched his father invalidate his mother's needs and invalidate his mother's concerns over and over again. So he was primed to kind of like cover up his ears and not listen to a woman who was, you know, quote unquote, complaining. And by the way, Tony also grew up in the world that we all grew up in, which is a patriarchal world in which we are all too eager to talk about women who quote unquote nag, yikes, or women who are quote unquote hysterical or overly emotional or overreacting or over-exaggerating, et cetera, et cetera, right? So ignoring a woman in pain is our sort of collective inheritance, isn't it? For Ruth, she needs to be compassionate with herself about the ways in which she abandoned herself. She allowed herself to be ignored. She allowed her concerns to be diminished. She saw what she saw. She felt what she felt. And she let herself, you know, kind of stay in a situation where she felt a million miles away from her partner. She also connects this to a family of origin pattern of hers. She was the only child of two very busy and high-achieving parents. And she remembers that she used to come home from school to an empty house, and she would feel so, so, so lonely. And if she would ever take the risk of letting her parents know that she was pretty lonely, that she missed them, that she would love some more care and attention and connection, her parents could not offer her any empathy. They would instead just tell her to focus on what a nice home they live in and look at all these privileges, look at all of what we're doing for you. And so Tony's tendency to see Ruth's concerns as too much really felt all too familiar to Ruth. So, okay, let's talk a little bit then about how Ruth and Tony began to forgive each other. 
Tony needed to use all of that self-compassion that he had developed to regulate himself on the inside to deal with, you know, to kind of contain and soothe the rise of shame he was at risk of feeling, to tame and soothe all the temptations of defensiveness that he would feel during these conversations so that he could just bear witness to Ruth talking to him about how lonely she felt in their relationship, right? He had to kind of calm himself on the inside so he could just merely kind of hold space and attend and stay present as Ruth talked about how lonely she had felt. And from that place of self-compassion and groundedness and presence, Tony was able to acknowledge how hard it must have been for Ruth. He was unavailable because he was depressed, and then he was unavailable because he was not able to be open about his depression. And as Tony showed that he could be gentle with himself, while offering empathy to Ruth, that gave Ruth these little glimpses of a felt sense that something was shifting inside of Tony. Tony was developing more capacity for relationality. He was developing an intimacy with himself that was allowing some space inside of him to see and witness and feel what Ruth was going through as well. And then Ruth, for her part, was able to apologize to Tony for the harsh things that she had said to him when she felt like she was at the end of her rope. And yes, she has compassion for how lonely and upset she felt, but at the same time, making threats, being critical is not who she wants to be. And so therefore, she could apologize that she didn't like how she was showing up. Yes, she has compassion for how difficult the situation was, and at the same time, She's not, you know, planting her flag and saying, that was the right way to behave. I am proud of how I behaved in those moments. No, she's saying, that's not the me that I want to be. I am not necessarily proud of the things that I said when I felt so triggered. Okay, so this example is simplified, but it does give you a sense of how that process goes, how we titrate acknowledgement, self-compassion, apology, and forgiveness. Question eight, when one or both of you is experiencing doubt, what do you want to remember? So I think it's pretty reasonable to anticipate a little bit of a honeymoon period as you reconcile. But I also really want you to anticipate a moment when version 2.0 of the relationship reminds you of version 1.0. Of the relationship. And I think probably one of the biggest fears for couples who are beginning again is that moment when they experience that sense of, uh oh, here we go again. And that moment is understandably going to scare you. And that moment may understandably create kind of a rush of doubt like, what the hell was I thinking? And I want you to remember that a resonance does not have to be a repetition. As long as you use curiosity and humility to handle a familiar moment in a new way. The question for you to reflect on and talk about is when you encounter issues that caused the separation or the breakup in the past, how do you want to handle those moments differently? Like, what are you each going to commit to that will help a moment go differently? I want you to meet that moment first by not fighting it. 
Remember my favorite Byron Katie quote, when I argue with reality, I lose, but only 100% of the time. So when there's a moment in version 2.0 that feels like it's an echo of 1.0, the first thing I want you to do is not fight the fact that it's happening. It is happening. That familiarity is happening, right? The moment is happening. And at some level, of course, there's going to be echoes. You are in some ways still you. They are in some ways still them. Even though you're growing and changing, of course, there's both same and different. And then remember also that negativity bias in your brain. Your brain protects you by scanning for similarity. The moment is happening. The familiarity is happening. You do not have control over when you feel a resonance, but you can do your level best to handle it differently this time around. So just slow down. Just pause. Just take a break. Step away if you need to. And because your brain is going to be looking for old patterns, Make sure that you are consciously taking in the moments when that old pattern does not happen in the Family Institute's model, which is called integrative systemic therapy, the model that I, therapy model that I practice from. We call this the alternative adaptive sequence, the AAS. When a moment that could have gone the old way goes the new way. So really, really capture those for yourself. Develop a practice of savoring when things go differently for the two of you. When, for example, your partner tends to a concern of yours in a way they would have maybe become defensive in the past. A moment perhaps when you speak up instead of staying quiet, if that's what you used to do in the past. Whatever it is, whatever you're doing differently, notice it, capture it, savor it, maybe even say it out loud to each other. So take some time and also imagine what that moment might be for you. Like really paint a picture for yourself. What is it that your ex would be doing or saying that would give you that deja vu feeling? That moment also, you know, points you towards where you need to bring additional kind of healing and tending and amends. You have a a tender spot there. I like the idea of you and this person talking about those fears together. Do the two of you share the same image of what that deja vu moment might be? Do the two of you have different deja vu moments that you are particularly afraid of or worried about? So talk about that together. And regardless of whether you guys have the same fearful kind of deja vu places or different ones, regardless, you could take some time together and do like a little rehearsal preview together what you each want to be able to remember and how you each want to meet that moment if and when it happens. Let's go back to our friends Ruth and Tony. So Ruth had a few different triggers as Ruth and Tony were reconciling. She had a few different triggers. When Tony would get kind of quiet or if he slept in later than usual, a part of her would get scared that he wasn't just a little tired from work, but he was instead slipping away into depression again. So that was her sort of fearful deja vu moment. 
And Tony was committed to being proactive. So he took it upon himself to offer Ruth updates about his therapy and about his men's group. And not necessarily like specific details of what he was working on or what he had talked about. But because Tony knew where Ruth's tender spots were, he would find ways to let her know that he had gone to therapy, that he was engaging in the work, that he you know, was doing the things that he knew were helping him become the person he wanted to be and the partner that he wanted to be and that Ruth really needed him to be. And rather than feeling like sort of like the good boy who's trying to please mommy by giving updates, he instead let himself feel really proud of becoming somebody who takes his partner's concerns seriously. So giving updates to Ruth wasn't to get like the little gold star or the pat on the head. It was because he really got that this is what relationality in action looks like. You give updates, you volunteer what's going on inside of your world so that your partner doesn't have to worry, so that your partner doesn't have to figure out how to ask without setting you off and walking on eggshells, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how you build a solid foundation for intimate partnership, by honoring the tender spots and taking responsibility for ourselves and doing what we can do. Before we go on to question nine, quick reminder, this episode comes with a companion worksheet. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you will just get that worksheet in your inbox. But otherwise, you can head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash second chances and you can download it. Okay, moving right along. Question nine, how will you handle the inevitable pace discrepancies that will arise during this process? So pace discrepancy is my term for when intimate partners are not on the same page about the speed at which they're going to arrive at their next commitment milestone. Pace discrepancies are really, really common for couples. The chances that each of you are going to be ready for the next commitment milestone, like taking dating apps off your phones, like exclusivity, like having sex, like talking to family and friends, like traveling together, whatever it is, they're very slim, very slim chance that you're both going to be ready for the exact same thing at the exact same time. But pace discrepancies can evoke powerful feelings. It's no fun to be the one who's got their foot on the gas pedal, worrying that the other one, you know, doesn't really want this as much. It's also no fun to be the one who's got their foot a little bit on the brake pedal and feeling like they're a disappointment or what's wrong with me that I'm not ready for what my partner's ready for. So episode 42 of Reimagining Love was all about talking with your partner about the future and navigating pace discrepancies. So you can turn to that episode, which is linked in the show notes, and that episode will support you as well. But what I want to say here is that when you are reconciling with an ex, the whole commitment trajectory can feel so tricky because you are inevitably hitting milestones that you have already experienced before. The most significant way that plays out is couples who actually divorce and then actually marry each other again, right? Those couples have two weddings with the same person. But even if your situation is not as significant as that one, there are going to be firsts that aren't really firsts. And the timeline can feel confusing because the relationship has already progressed through a certain point, and yet here you are again, 
back at square one. It's like a both and. New and not new. A first and not a first. So what are you supposed to do about that? Well, first, just acknowledge it. Acknowledge the funkiness. Just acknowledge the funkiness. This does not mean that you are doomed. It does not need to be something that is embarrassing. It just is. Also, you get to move slowly. That rush of pessimistic thoughts and feelings might be a reflection that you're going faster than your body is ready for. So slow down and see if that maybe helps you return to a place of ease and optimism. And if not optimism, maybe just openness. Resist the urge to speed up again so that you can get past the commitment milestones that you've already done, right? Like try and resist the urge to kind of get back to like things as usual or at least get back to where we were the first time around because this version of your relationship is going to need to look different. And so it's not like your concerns are going to go away the moment you hit the final milestone you had before breakup. That's kind of a fantasy or a myth. Like we oftentimes do that, don't we? We we say, well, I can relax once this happens, or I can take a deep breath once this happens. And so in this reconciliation process, you might have an idea that once we hit that milestone, which was the last one we hit before we broke up, and then we once we get past that milestone, then I can relax. I don't want you to have it out there like a mirage, you know, because I think then what do you do with any anxiety you might feel after you hit that milestone? So I would rather have you just go slow and steady and just know that at each and every point along the way, even as you re-hit a milestone, you can invite in a little bit of ease, a little bit of relaxation, a little bit of kind of catching your breath, looking around, noticing how you feel, how your partner feels at this point along the way. So just be careful about not moving the goal line in that way. I also want you to avoid making assumptions about what your partner may or may not be ready for in terms of commitment. Talk about it instead. I think having a goal of more open communication, a lower threshold for bringing up concerns, I think that's a really good guiding principle for a relationship that is a reconciling relationship, is that we just talk about things. We don't assume. We check in. We ask. And then see if you can celebrate small progresses, small victories, little, little, little micro commitments along the trajectory, having a nice dinner with each other's friends, solving a difficult problem as a team, doing something slightly differently than you had done before the breakup. These are all celebration worthy. Question 10, what are your highest values as you consider getting back together? Let's talk first about the difference between goals and values. This is something I learned from Dr. Yael Schonbrunn, who you're going to get to meet soon on Reimagining Love. A goal is what you want to do. A value is how you want to feel as you make progress towards that goal. So let's imagine a goal of taking a five-mile hike. That's the goal. That's the what. But there could be a few different values that guide you towards that goal. A value might be speed. How fast can we take this hike? A value might be intimacy. How deep and vulnerable can our conversation get as we take this hike? 
A value might be solitude. How meditative can each of us get as we take this hike? Okay, so how does this look regarding reconciliation? Hmm. Well, rather than having the goal be getting back together, the goal might actually be to decide whether a process of reconciliation is feasible, wise, and in everyone's best interests. But you might also need to move towards that goal in a way that is guided by your values, how you will move towards that goal. So what will be the values that are going to help you make little micro decisions along the way? Possible values might be honesty, freedom, safety, adventure, respect, concern, empathy, curiosity, humility, maybe a couple of those, maybe a few of those, maybe all of those. What are the values that you want to have guide this process of considering reconciliation? Because the two of you are going to need to chart a course that works for both of you, I want you to be explicit about your values. And that's going to help you set boundaries and set parameters. That's going to help you create a vision for what reconciliation looks like for the two of you. It may be helpful to kind of have a mission statement. See what fits for your situation. But I like the idea of a mission statement that can help you guys get clear on your values. I'm going to just talk you through a few possible mission statements or values statements and see, you know, see if any of these inspire you to figure out what would be your mission statement? What would be your values statement that would kind of hold this process for you? One, exploring the possibility of reconciliation gives me an opportunity to learn more about myself. Two, reconciliation can only happen if both of us feel like this relationship can serve our well-being. Three, I want my partner to feel free, not obliged, to choose this relationship again. Four, I want to feel free, not obliged, to choose this relationship again. Five, I am committed to gentleness no matter what. Six, I am willing to engage in a process even though I have limited control over the outcome. Seven, I bring curiosity and patience. Your values are like a compass and getting as clear as you can on your values at the outset will help you notice when you're making choices that align with the person that you want to be And when you're starting to drift off and become a version of yourself that you feel less proud of or less comfortable with. And by the way, your values as an individual and your ex's values as an individual might not be identical. I mean, they they can't be diametrically opposed, certainly, but they may not be identical. For example, if you were betrayed in version 1.0, your highest value may be safety. And your ex's highest value really does need to be transparency or respect or integrity. But you can also identify a shared value that can guide the relationship, like trust. And in doing so, 
you provide yourselves and each other with something to come back to, to guide all the choices along the way. Question 11. How will you talk with your family and your friends about the fact that you might be or are getting back together? I think it's really important to have even a very, very small group of allies who know that the two of you are exploring the possibility of getting back together. Why? Well, first and foremost, it's for a very practical reason. And that is because if you rekindle this relationship in the dark without anyone in your life knowing, the reconciliation might be fueled by the fact that it is transgressive and secret. Secret relationships have a tendency to be supercharged. And I worry about that feeling of excitement being confusing. Perhaps in that situation, your excitement and your eagerness are more a reflection of the thrill of something being hidden, something being naughty, rather than excitement that is about, wow, look at us, look at the two of us working together to create something healthy. You are going to need and deserve your second chance to be fueled by health and relational self-awareness not fueled by excitement about being, you know, kind of sneaky or just the two of us against the world. We're the only ones that know. That's not a particularly sustainable way of doing it. I want you to keep the lights on, so to speak, even just a little bit by having even just a couple of people in your life know what's going on. I also want you to have allies because intimate partnerships tend to be the strongest when they are buoyed by a community. I have this memory of sitting in a first couples therapy session with a couple and I was getting to know them. And so I asked them about their families and they really didn't have anybody in their families that they were close to. And then I asked them about their friends and they really did not have very much of a friendship network. And I asked them about religious affiliations or other community memberships and they really didn't have anybody much outside of each other. And I remember feeling like almost dizzy for a moment. Like there was so much pressure on each of them to be an entire world for each other. And then it was sort of like, therefore, pressure in a way on me to help them heal and grow without being able to leverage any kind of outside resources. That's a hard way of doing it. I want every couple to feel really embedded in a larger network. An intimate relationship creates a bridge, right? These two people come together and there's like a bridge then between their families, between their groups of friends. It's why, in part, weddings tend to be community events. A robust community helps a couple's good times be even more fun. A robust community takes the pressure off of intimate partners to be everything to each other. And a robust community provides witnessing and validation during tough times. So this is, of course, for the two of you, where things get complicated. I've had so many experiences over the years, and I'm sure you have also, of, you know, I've gotten to know my people's partners, right? Like my friends, my family members, like the people that they are bringing in as boyfriends, as girlfriends, as husbands, as wives, as partners. And I can feel this very, very clear both and. I can love and appreciate you as my person's partner 
while knowing full well that if the relationship goes south, my primary loyalty lies with my friend or with my sibling, whoever it is. And it doesn't mean that my loyalty to my friend or my sibling is blind loyalty. If the relationship goes south, I will likely be able to see ways in which my person had a hand in the relationship problems. And I might even, if asked, talk to my person about their role in the relationship problems. But when push comes to shove, I know that I'm going to support my person. So when you and your partner went through your breakup, so did your people. They felt some kind of a way about your breakup. And it was not your job to take care of their feelings because you had enough going on going through the breakup, I'm quite sure. But I hope that you're able to be accepting of the fact that they had feelings. They had feelings about your breakup. And now that you are considering reconciling with this person, your family and friends are very likely going to have some feelings once again. They've got their own stories. They've got their own angles. They have their own biases. And perhaps their story is quite gracious. But Their story may very well be a story about a victim and a villain, and they may feel very protective of you as you step back in. And they may need to forgive your ex and take the risk of seeing your ex again with fresh eyes. So see if you can have some compassion for your people if they're feeling protective of you or feeling nervous. If they were in the trenches with you during the breakup, they probably come by their concern quite honestly. And you can have compassion for them while being clear within yourself that you are making careful choices, you're making mindful choices, you're not rushing headlong here. See what it might be like to say to your people some version of this. Listen, I know you're concerned. And frankly, I'm concerned also. I'm going slowly. I'm being careful. I'm resourcing myself. And I understand that you might need some time to get used to this idea. I am not going to try to sell you on my vision. I can be patient. But in the meantime, please let me know what kinds of updates you might want from me. And please know that if and as we get back together, I might want to start bringing this person around again. So let's keep our lines of communication open about how we can make that process as gentle as it can possibly be. And my final thought here is you may need to get out of the way. If your people have an issue with your ex, maybe your people and your ex may need to have a conversation together at some point. And it may even need to be without you there. They may need to talk it through together. And the more you try to sell your people on the goodness of your ex, the more they may dig in. Consider what it might be like for your ex to bear witness to your people's hurt. What might it be like for your ex to ask for forgiveness, to ask for patience, to ask for a second chance? That may be a part of what needs to happen in this journey. But it may be the same thing for you. You may need to sit down with some of your ex's people and kind of talk it through and figure out what a fresh start looks like, what a version 2.0 of those relationships might look like. And it may take time and it may take intention. Okay, last question, question 12. 
What are you most proud of about how you are handling this process so far? Because healing is far more curvy than linear, second chances can feel like two steps forward and one step back. So make sure that you notice what's going well. I've brought this point up a few times because it's just so important. Make sure you celebrate little wins. Make sure you notice a moment that could have gone sideways but didn't. Make sure you notice how the two of you are handling situations differently now than you could back then. Progress is fuel. Visiting old patterns with new skills, that's fuel. Every time you relate to each other with a little more curiosity and a little more patience, you create what therapists call a corrective emotional experience. You have the opportunity to feel something now that you could not or did not feel then. And you have the opportunity to witness yourself offering something now that you could not or did not offer then. Noticing the victories is not about being in denial about the hard stuff or the slip-ups. It's about knowing that the victories are the fuel. When you catch one of these moments, savor it for yourself and share it with your partner. You might have the urge to say something like this. If you can listen to my concerns now without getting defensive, why couldn't you just have done that back then? Or we could have been spared so much difficulty if you had just been like this before. Or see, that wasn't so hard, was it? Okay, any of those comments, that's your hurt talking. That's your fear talking. That's your sadness talking. Your hurt, your fear, your sadness, those are all real. So the urge to make comments like that is so understandable. See if you can stretch yourself and try something that is some version of this. Thank you for giving me now what you couldn't give me then. Or even, I love how you're responding now. And I'm aware that there's a small part of me, of course, that grieves for the fact that I have now what I couldn't have then. A lot of me is glad to have it now. I'm getting used to it. And I get a little scared sometimes about trusting it. I get a little scared sometimes about losing it or losing you. But I'm really working to appreciate where we are. I'm kind of giving voice to that complexity. See if perhaps some pride might be able to sit right alongside the worry. Okay. That's it. We did it. We talked through questions seven through 12. So thank you so much for tuning in to part two of this series. I'm thinking about getting back together with my ex. And remember, this episode comes with a companion worksheet. So you will get that in your inbox if you're a subscriber to the newsletter, or you can head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash second chances and download it. And I will be back with you next week on Reimagining Love, where we will have a brand new guest conversation. Until next time, take good care of you. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com 
where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love. 